Good morning, Paramount. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to take it and turn to Romans chapter 4. As you're turning to Romans chapter 4, I want to give you an update about something that we've been talking about every week for the last few weeks, and that is that uh, coming up to Easter, Southern Baptists across the country take up an offering for uh, church planters. These are men and women who uh, go to unreached cities all across the country and start new churches in very difficult to reach places. And uh, we have set a church-wide goal of $25,000 to raise and to send. None of that money comes to Paramount Baptist Church. We send all of that to these uh, folks who are starting new churches. And I want you to know that as of last Sunday, we have raised over $23,000 for Annie Armstrong. So that is something to celebrate this morning. And we're not even to Easter yet, so uh, all of you who gave, uh, listen, you have a, an opportunity to give again next Sunday, okay? But we're very excited and thankful for what the Lord is doing through you uh, to reach uh, people all across the country. Uh, listen, I want to say a, a special word of uh, thank you. So many of you have asked me this morning how Amy is doing. If you've not heard, uh, Amy had a, a very serious injury on Wednesday. She stooped down to pick up a Lego and tweaked her back. You've got to watch out for these Legos. And uh, tweaked her back and actually uh, collapsed and uh, uh, could not stand on Wednesday. So she has uh, been going to the chiropractor every day and uh, is progressing somewhat. She's to the point now where she can stand with a walker. But uh, we, uh, we've got four little natives who are running around the house, you know, trying to destroy stuff all the time. So you can pray for them uh, that they would survive this, and for dad, and for mama, okay, pray for Amy, but listen, we have had so many meals, and people who've come by, people who've helped with the kids, and we're so thankful, Amy told me last night, she said, I've, I've felt as loved on by a church as I've ever felt in my life uh, this last week, and so I want to thank you so much, Paramount, for your love for our family, and the way that you have demonstrated that in very tangible ways. Um, you know, what happened to Amy, I think, actually uh, can lead us to talk about Romans chapter 4, because what happened with Amy is that something slipped in her back. Something went out of place, and it has messed everything up for the last half of the week. But I think that a lot of people really feel that way in their life. They feel as if something is tweaked, something is out of place, that nothing's going right, and uh, things are are messed up in their life and they're seeking resolution to that. They're looking for a way out of that. People are fundamentally looking for happiness. But happiness, as you know, is very elusive. And many of the ways that we seek happiness actually lead us not to happiness. It leads us to be more unhappy, doesn't it? I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the advent of social media which is an incredible thing, I mean, it's just been absolutely revolutionary. In 2004, when Mark Zuckerberg started the Facebook, as he originally called it, uh, he started it out of a dorm room at Har Harvard University. Now Facebook, I think, has over a billion users, something like that. It's, it's uh, worth $350 billion. Facebook has surpassed in value Exxon and Walmart. So social media uh, is, is here to stay, I believe. And, you know, it's interesting that social media, I think all the different social media platforms out there were designed to help us with the problem of loneliness. People feel lonely and they want to feel more connected. And so they use social media. But isn't it ironic 
that social media, which is the supposed solution to loneliness, has actually led many people to more loneliness, where they substitute actual real relationships for fake online relationships? It's ironic, isn't it? Well, the same thing is true with our search for happiness. A lot of times, the things that we use to try to be happy don't make us happy. They make us more unhappy. The solution has really become the problem. Now, I believe fundamentally that everyone wants to find happiness and that this is actually a good thing, that you were designed by God for joy. But so often as humans, we seek to find happiness in all of the wrong ways and we end up much less happy than we were before. I mean, think about it. From the moment that you're born, you begin to search for things that make you happy. If it's a baby, it's a, maybe a bottle of milk or a pacifier or that special teddy bear. Anything to pacify, to make happy, and then it just continues all the way through life. I believe that that was a God-created desire. That God actually created in us a desire to search for happiness, The problem is, is that we try to find happiness in all of the wrong ways. Blaise Pascal, who was a French philosopher and mathematician, said it this way. He said that all of us have a God-shaped vacuum in the human heart. Think about it, a God-shaped hole in the heart, and we try to fill that hole, we try to fill that vacuum with all kinds of things that we think will make us happy. We try relationships. Maybe it's a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, and we're, we're looking for ultimate happiness in that person. But so often, uh, we get disappointed in our marriages, or marriages lead to divorce, and instead of finding happiness in a relationship, we find a great deal of misery in a relationship. Some people seek for happiness in career advancement or financial success, and they work and work and work, and they burn the candle at both ends, trying to achieve the pinnacle of their career, and by the time they get there, they are so burned out that they are miserable, and the thing that they were trying to fill that hole in their heart didn't lead them to happiness, it led them to greater unhappiness. It's why the suicide rate of CEOs is so high because they've worked their whole life to get to this pinnacle of success and once they finally arrive, they realize it does not satisfy like they thought it would satisfy. Many of you have had experiences in your life with substance abuse, alcoholism, or, or a drug addiction and you first go to those substances and they thrill and then they kill. And they fascinate, and they allure, and then you become addicted. And you've heard the saying that first the, the uh, man takes the drink, and then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. And we're searching for happiness and for satisfaction through substances, and the end of that road is not happiness, it's misery. God created us for joy. And we're trying to fill our heart with all of these different things, but it is a God-shaped hole. That emptiness that we often feel in our life can only be filled by God. When we seek to find happiness in all of these ways, but none of it works, and in in many cases we become less happy. We have an unhappiness epidemic. People are not happy. One of the questions that the Bible actually answers is this. What is the secret to happiness? How can you find a real joy 
that nothing can take away. And the text that we're going to look at this morning, Romans chapter four, answers that very question. What's the secret to happiness? The text uses a word, some of you have a translation that translates the word happy. It's actually what the word means. The the word in my translation, the Christian Standard Bible, uses the word blessed. But blessed, it's kind of, blessed is a word that we toss around all the time. God bless you, that was a blessing, this blesses me. But the word blessed in Hebrew and in Greek means happy. Now I'm not talking about a kind of happiness that circumstances can touch. I'm not talking about a kind of happiness that could come and go as you go through the the mountains and the valleys of life. I'm talking about a real, settled joy, a real happiness, a settled satisfaction. And the text tells us four times in four verses that happiness is a possibility, that happiness is real, that you can experience happiness. And I'm gonna contend this morning, the reason that I'm gonna contend this morning is because the text contends for this, that the only way that you can find happiness that is true and lasting is if you find it in the gospel. The secret to happiness is to root your life in the gospel. You see, you were created for joy, but you were created to find your deepest joy in God. And I believe that you'll never have joy, you'll never have happiness, you'll never have satisfaction until you have it in God. Westminster Confession, that old statement of faith, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To find your happiness and your joy in God, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that's what I'm gonna argue for this morning. Romans chapter four, Paul is going to talk about those who are really and truly happy. Look at Romans chapter four, beginning in verse six. Paul says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits Righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. We're going to stop right there for just a moment. There are four gospel words that if you can truly wrap your mind around, if you can truly grasp their meaning, can give you the kind of happiness that nothing can take away. And this is important to talk about today because we're on Palm Sunday, the the Sunday before Jesus died on the cross in the Christian calendar. And these four words that we're going to look at this morning represent what Jesus came to do. It represents what the cross is all about. And if we can grasp these four words, we can have a happiness that is true and lasting. The first word that I want you to see of gospel truth here in this text is the word credited, credited. Look what he says in verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing, that is the happiness, the true rooted joy of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, Paul has just been arguing that we are credited 
righteousness through faith in what Jesus has done. And he uses the first paragraph of Romans chapter four, he uses Abraham as an example, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And now he's gonna quote King David and he's gonna quote specifically Psalm 32, which we'll see here in just a moment. But he says it's not just Abraham who was credited righteousness through faith, it was also David. And David spoke of the blessing, the happiness that comes when you have a credited righteousness from God. The word credited here is very important. Listen, it literally means to credit to someone's account. It's a banking term. It's an accountant's word. Now Romans chapter three verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, no not One, there is no one righteous. But here in Romans chapter four, Paul says that you can have a credited righteousness. If I'm bankrupt and I have a friend who loans me or gives me some money, he goes to the bank, he deposits his money into my account, and what happens in that transaction is that my friend's wealth becomes my wealth. My friend's riches get transferred, credited to my account. Now listen, without Christ, we are spiritually bankrupt. But the gospel tells us that Jesus deposits the riches of his righteousness into our bankrupt account. Ephesians chapter one tells us that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. You go to Ephesians chapter two and it repeats that theme. We are seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come he might lavish upon us, what a beautiful word, lavish upon us the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Listen, without Jesus we are bankrupt. With Jesus our bank account is full of the credited righteousness of Jesus. If y'all were a bunch of Pentecostals, you'd be hooping and hollering this morning. (laughs) Are you awake? (laughs) Credited. That is a righteousness, a right standing before God that is not ours by right or by inheritance is deposited to our account. All the riches of glory that Jesus has through Christ, we have. I don't know if you've ever... uh, seen this, I've seen it multiple times, you know, where you'll be driving down the road and you, you see that someone's run out of gas. And sometimes, the, you know, there'll be two or three people who hop out and they try to push that car because it's out of gas and they're pushing and they're struggling and they're straining and they're, they're trying to get that car to go. Listen, so much that represents our effort in our life to try to be right, to try to be righteous, to try to have a right standing before God. We are out of fuel, we are out of gas, and we are pushing and straining and struggling to get the car to go. Listen, the word of gospel truth that Paul has for us is that we have the fuel of God's grace that is credited. Jesus comes and fuels up our empty tank. How can you have a happiness that no circumstance can take away. It's because of this simple gospel truth. We're bankrupt, but in Christ, we have the riches of his grace. His righteousness is now credited as my righteousness. 
his wealth becomes my wealth because he's deposited it into my account. That's the first word of gospel truth that leads us to blessing, to happiness. Blessed is the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. That is, this is not something that you push and struggle and work for. It's something that God works in you. God works for you and you receive as a gift by faith. That's the first word of gospel truth. Here's the second word of gospel truth, not just credited, but notice the word forgiven. Forgiven. Look what Paul says in verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven. Now let's just stop right there on that word lawless acts. Some of you have a translation that translates this iniquity. What does it mean to use the word iniquity? Well, the word iniquity means literally to transgress the law. What is a transgression? Here it is very simply. To transgress means to cross the line. That's what it means. God's law sets up boundaries. These things you shall do, these things you shall not do, those are boundaries. To transgress the law literally means to cross the line. We step over the line, we step over the boundary that God has set for us. A lot of times we view boundaries as a restrictive thing. They're not at all. Boundaries are a freeing thing. When I tell my children, don't run across the street, They think that I'm restricting their freedom, but I'm actually giving them the greatest amount of freedom because I'm sparing their life. If they run out into what they think is freedom, that truck may run them over. Isn't that what happens when we cross the line? We think we know what freedom is. We think we know what's best for us. We cross the line and we're destroyed. God has set up boundaries through his word that are designed for our greatest freedom, but we transgress them. All of us, every single one of us has crossed the line. We cross lines that we shouldn't even come close to. Now, notice that Paul is quoting here, beginning in verses seven and eight, he quotes Psalm 32, which are the words of King David. Now, just think about the life of David. Did David ever cross a line? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're told of the story of David. It was the time for uh, kings to go to war, the scripture tells us. I guess they set their calendar. It's wartime. And all the kings go out to war, but not David. David, abandoning his responsibility as king, not fighting on behalf of Israel, he stays home and he goes up onto his rooftop And in that day, uh, in an arid desert climate, the way that you would collect rain for bath water is on the roof. And there's a woman named Bathsheba who's bathing on top of the roof, probably has collected water there, taking a bath. And King David looks. And instead of doing what every godly man should do, which is to bounce the eyes, to bounce the eyes, David looks and he lusts and then he takes and he commits adultery with Bathsheba, a boundary that God set up for his good, for his joy, for his freedom. David, obey me and this is good for you. David steps across that line, he transgresses. He commits iniquity, he transgresses the law, he commits a lawless 
act. And then he crosses another line by killing Bathsheba's husband, a man named Uriah. We've all crossed lines that we never should have crossed. We've all crossed lines that we should never have come close to. But the text here tells us that we are blessed, we are happy when we have those transgressions of God's law forgiven. Now, let's think about that word forgiveness for a moment. There, you know, the Greek language is an incredibly complex language. It's much more complex than English. I can use uh, the word in English, love, to talk about a lot of different things. I love bluebell ice cream, amen? And I love my children and my wife. But I love bluebell ice cream in a totally different way than I love my wife and my children, don't I? You'd hope so anyway. (laughs) The Greek language is complex. There are often many different words to describe different aspects of the same thing. There are many different words for forgiveness. Paul could have used any one of them, but he uses a very specific word in Greek. He uses a word that literally means to send away or to separate. Literally, Paul says, blessed, happy are those whose transgressions of the law, whose line crossings are separated from them, are sent away from them. It means to cast it off, to separate it. This word is used of death. When someone dies, they are separated from us. This word was used of divorce, the separation of a husband and a wife. This word is used uh, when a debt is canceled. The idea that your, your debt is separated from you, your debt is sent away, your debt is cast off. That's the word that Paul uses. He says, <clears throat> blessed, happy are those whose sin is cast off whose sin is sinned away, whose sin is separated from them. Listen, this tells us a beautiful gospel truth that God separates the guilt and the sin from the sinner. When you come to Jesus, when you believe the gospel, your sin is cast away from you. It's separated from you. Now, it's really interesting. Many people who've committed murder describe the experience of having blood washed off their hands, but they feel like it's still there. They're clean, but there's a sense in which they feel like they're still covered in the blood of their victim. And there's a sense in which our sin sticks to us like that. In fact, in the ancient world, if you committed murder and you were caught, in some cultures, they would take the corpse of your victim and tie it to you and you'd have to walk around with the corpse of your victim. That may be, by the way, what Paul has in mind when he says, who will deliver us from this body of death? The idea is that our sin, our guilt, is just clinging to us. Have you ever felt that way? you ever felt so guilty, you feel like you just can't get it off of you? Here's a beautiful word of gospel truth. When you come to Jesus, he forgives that. And what it means to be forgiven is that he sends that guilt and that sin away. He separates the sin from the sinner. When he washes you clean, you are clean indeed. Whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. Thank you, Lord. 
Jesus separates us from our sin. He sends it away. That'll make you happy. That'll give you a joy that circumstances can't take away. Now here's the third word of gospel truth. We are credited, we are forgiven. Here's the third word. We are covered, covered. Look at the end of verse seven. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You see that? Covered. Literally means covered over. Now the word sin here is a different word than the word transgressions. He uses a separate word. The word sin here means to miss the mark. Literally, to miss the mark. I remember the first time I ever went elk hunting in New Mexico. Been hunting for a day and a half because I was a pastor. I was hunting on Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Had to be back church on Sunday. Got to be back. Didn't have to be back. I got to be back for church Sunday morning. So I knew I had a limited window of opportunity to take an elk before I had to go back. I got to go back. And so it was, you know, twilight was coming and it was getting darker and darker. And uh, I remember we were, we had an Indian guide in uh, New Mexico who was with us and we were driving this truck through the woods, through these little back, back road, mountain roads. And about 400 yards, we saw a group of three elk and he slams on the brake. He says, get out and shoot it. So I jump out and my heart is racing. My heart is just beating, dung, dung, dung. It's like drums in my head, you know, and I'm, <sighs> I'm just getting nervous and I stand and I've got my rifle and now a 400 yard shot is, uh, for some of you men, probably no problem, but for me, it's like, Jesus, take the wheel, you know? <laughs> uh, please, Lord, you know? And so that's a tough shot anyway, but my heart was just beating and my, my breath was heavy and I'm trying to, and I can see the scope is just going up and there's the Indian in my ear saying, take the shot, take the shot. So boom, about three feet over the top of that elk. I can see it hit the dirt. And I thought the elk would run away. It didn't, it just stood there chewing grass, staring at me. I mean, it wasn't afraid of me at all. I took two more shots and missed three times in a row. And then finally, the elk just kind of wandered off into the woods, you know. <laughs> Missing the mark. Now listen, that's what sin is. Sin is when we, we miss the mark. So many of us have missed the mark. We've made a mistake. That's what sin is. And here, Paul says that the gospel means that Jesus covers it over. He covers over our mistake. Just like whiteout. If you've ever made a mistake on a piece of paper, you use whiteout. You cover over that mistake. I think about a couple of stories in the Old Testament. Joshua chapter seven, the story of Achan. God is uh, leading Israel to defeat their enemies and in one particular place they defeat their enemies and God says don't take anything, don't plunder your enemies take all of the gold and the silver and so forth and bring it into the storehouse, bring it to the temple. This is gonna fund the mission. But Achan selfishly takes some silver, he takes some clothes, and he goes into his tent, he digs a hole, he buries it in there, and then he covers it over with a blanket. And uh, the next battle, Israel loses. There's sin in the camp. And Achan's sin is ultimately discovered. And when, when God points him out, says, you're the one, men have to go into his tent and uncover what he's tried to cover up. 
David tried to cover up, didn't he? He commits adultery, and then to cover it up, he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, trying to cover it over until Samuel, the prophet, came and pointed the finger, said, David, you're guilty. There are times when we all sin and try to hide our sin. You can't hide your sin. Scripture tells us, be sure your sin will find you out. You try to cover it up, you can't cover it up. But listen, if you come to Jesus, he will bury your sin never to come up again. You can't cover up your sin, but Jesus can. Literally, Jesus covers over our sin. First Peter chapter four, verse eight, love covers a multitude of sins. Same word, covers, covers it up. James Montgomery Boyce translates this verse two different ways. He said you can read this two different ways. Happy is the person to whom God has given a clean slate. Isn't that good? He translates another, another way. How wonderful to be able to start again with no black marks against you. Those of you who've been in the military, you go through boot camp. You really can connect with this verse. You know with that drill instructor, you don't want to get on his bad side. You don't want to be the special project. My grandfather and my mother were in the military. And if you get on the bad side of a drill instructor, you've got a black mark against you. You've got a bias against you. You start racking up demerits. Listen, because of the gospel, there are no marks against you. Because of what Jesus has done for you, covering over your mistakes, covering them up, eliminating them, whiting them out, Pressing the delete button. Wiping the hard drive clean. Is it too soon for that? <laughs> Still not funny. <laughs> Eliminating. Washing. His mercies new every morning. Because of that, you can start again with no black marks against you. Happy is the person to whom God has given a clean slate, covered. There's one final word of gospel truth that I want you to see this morning. In Christ, we are credited. In Christ, forgiven. In Christ, covered. Here's the last gospel truth I want you to see this morning. In Christ, never charged with sin. Never charged with sin. Look what he says in verse eight. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Now, I want you to notice this is really interesting. The word charged is the exact same Greek word in verse eight as the word credited in verse six. This is what he's saying. In verse six, Blessed is the one the Lord credits with righteousness. Verse eight, blessed is the one the Lord never credits with sin. 
Here's, here's the deal. The Lord charges to your account his righteousness, and in Christ he will never charge to your account your sin. And Hey, we can be Baptocostal in here. It's okay. That's a thing. The Lord will credit you with his righteousness and in Christ never credit you with your sin. And it's an emphatic. Ume, a double negative in the Greek New Testament. It's an emphatic. It's not good English, but it's great gospel. No, not ever charged with sin. No, never. The Lord will no, never charge sin to your account. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer, you know the feeling where it feels like your stomach is just kind of rising up into your throat. Your heart rate starts increasing. You break out into a sweat. And you know the relief that you get when he writes you a warning. And uh, you realize you're not going to be charged. Now, I haven't had that experience very much. My executive pastor back in Hobbs, I was with him on three separate occasions where he was exceeding the speed limit by 20 miles an hour. And he got a warning every single time. And I'm convinced that I was like a rabbit's foot. I mean, just the fact that I was in the car with him, you know, and I think he became convinced of that. He wanted me to drive with him everywhere he went, you know. Uh, now, he did, he did pull the church card. He said, uh, officer, you know, we're, we're pastors, we're heading to a funeral. We were. Or we're heading to church camp. We were. Or we're heading to pastor's retreat. We were. And uh, those kind police officers, you know, I, I don't think they wanted to mess with preachers, so they wrote a, a warning. And just, oh my word, just such a sense of relief. How much greater relief when you realize that we could be charged with our sin, but blessed is the one the Lord will no, never charge with their sin. Blessed is the one the Lord credits with righteousness, but will not credit with their sin. Listen, in the gospel, God doesn't charge us with our sin. Jesus received the charge so that we could receive the mercy. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, not describing love between a husband and wife. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians 13, you know that that's never gonna happen perfectly in your marriage. 1 Corinthians 13 is describing the love the Father has for us. And it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. The Lord does not charge, no, never, with our sin. The soul, the hymn writer tells us, that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Listen, Paramount Baptist Church, if you will run to Jesus, God will never forsake you. He will never charge you with your sin. He will not hold you to account for your mistakes. He's already held Jesus to account for your mistakes for you. As I close this morning, I know that there are a great number of people in this room who when they hear the truth of this text feel a great deal of relief. And I want you to know that that sense of relief, of having a clean slate, of forgiveness, of having accredited righteousness in your account, that should lead you to find joy, happiness, 
blessedness that circumstances can't destroy. The secret to happiness is to root your life in the gospel, to remind yourself of it, to preach the gospel to yourself. No one talks to you as much as you talk to you. You realize that? I'm not talking about talking to yourself out loud, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about in your mind, in your heart. You're always talking to yourself. You're always preaching to yourself. Someone said that the Bible is a war of sermons. Starts that way in the book of Genesis. A war of sermons, warring sermons. That happens in your head and in your heart all the time. Where you're speaking to yourself. So many people speak to themselves truths that are not true. They're not true at all. Lies that the enemy tells us. And we're supposed to preach the gospel to ourselves. We're supposed to remind ourselves, speak the truth to yourself. And when you speak the truth of these four gospel truths to yourself, it will give you a rooted joy. But I also know that there are likely a good number of people in this room who have a really hard time really accepting that this could be true of them. So many people are so overcome with guilt over past mistakes or current patterns of sin that they really just struggle to believe that God could truly wipe their slate clean and forgive them. And and I wanna point out something, especially for those who might be having a hard time accepting their acceptance. Uh, These four gospel words are incredible, but who are they for? Well, I just want to read verses 9 through 12 and make one comment about them. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? You know the answer. Genesis chapter 15 where God credits Abraham's faith as righteousness Abraham wasn't circumcised yet. That came later. And he received, verse 11, verse 10, it says it was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had had by faith while still uncircumcised, kind of like baptism. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham that he had while he was still uncircumcised. Here's what I want to say about this, this text. Here's Paul's point. This blessing, this happiness, is not only for the circumcised Jewish religious insiders. It's also for the uncircumcised, Gentile, pagan, irreligious outsiders. This blessing, this unshakable happiness can be experienced, Paul's saying, by anyone who will simply rest in the freedom and the forgiveness that Jesus purchased at the cross. If you're having a hard time believing that this truth is true for you, I'm telling you, Paul says, it's not just for the circumcised, it's for the uncircumcised. It's not just for the religious, it's for the irreligious. It's not just for the insiders, it's for the outsiders. It's not just for the the clean, nice people that you would expect. It's, It's for anyone who needs the righteousness of Jesus. World War II, there were many accounts of American POW camps in both Germany and occupied Philippines that are astounding. Soldiers 
told of liberating those POW camps, many of which, by the way, were totally abandoned by the enemy. And these soldiers would come up to the gates of these POW camps to release those who had been imprisoned. But those who had been liberated wouldn't come out of the camps. The prisoners would stand there inside the concentration camp looking outside at these American soldiers who'd come to liberate them and the soldiers would say, come on, come on out. Let's go. But the POWs wouldn't come out. They had been so tortured and so brainwashed into thinking that they could never escape that even though they were freed, they couldn't believe it. They had been under the oppressive reign of their enemies for so long, they thought they could never be free from captivity. But the truth is, all they had to do was step out into the freedom that was already theirs. Listen, there is freedom for those of you who will have it. You may have a hard time believing that or accepting that but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And the secret to happiness is a relationship with Jesus. It's the only thing that will satisfy you. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in church every week or if this is the first time you've ever been inside of a church building. You can find real happiness today. It's a relationship that you're invited into. So as we close this morning, I want to invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never experienced credited, forgiven, covered, never charged, experience it today. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn of response. There will be pastors here at the front. You just step out from wherever you're at. You come and tell a pastor, I want that. And we'll talk to you about how to give your life to Jesus, how to experience that freedom For those of us, many of us in the room, we've experienced it. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You know what that ought to lead us to do? Sing like never before and then go out those doors to our mission field and tell everybody that we can about these gospel truths. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to find our happiness in you. Holy Spirit, work in us the kind of overwhelming joy that overflows into praise and into a bold public witness. Holy Spirit, we pray that if there's someone in the room today who has not given their life to Jesus, these gospel words are not yet true of them, that they would come to Christ, that they would experience forgiveness, credited gift righteousness, All of the truths that this text teaches us about. Holy Spirit, you work and you draw those people to yourself. Move among us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.